Today and it were it just perfect. Sunday morning it was yeah so no idea. Anyway, uh, turn your Bibles to First Timothy chapter two. Let's open up in prayer. Let's thank God for our time. Always take it seriously and not take it for granted. Know that. This is a time for us to learn God's Word, and, uh, and that is one of the greatest things that we can do with our time, and uh, so with humility, concentration, and adoration. Let's bow our heads and pray. Our great Father in heaven, thank you for another day in your world. Thank you for another day that live in your grace and your mercy. We thank you for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who you have given to us so that we can be holy as you are holy and therefore have your life and live in your life. We thank you, Father, for him and the gift of grace, your love. And, uh, Father, we ask that through your Spirit, that uh, we would be enlightened by your word. And we ask in Christ's name, amen. Uh, we want, there it is, now it's back. Do you hear that? <laughs> no. If I, if I talk, oh, I'm hearing a crackling. Anyway, uh, if um, the, what we want to look at here for a day or two is Psalms 1 and 2. Uh, not, not just yet, but we want to make sure that before we look at some of the psalms, so many psalms that are, are, are written as prayers, that to understand prayer, it would be a crime not to go to several of them, at least. Um, but what I want to do is um, make sure to remind you, I, I, as we're looking into, because Psalm 1 and 2 is about preparing to pray. It's about being the type of person who has an effective prayer life. And what I don't want us to do is forget about, you know, while we're thinking about preparing to pray, that we actually do pray. You know, so keep praying. Uh, so the general forms of prayer are adoration, confession, thanksgiving, intercession, and petition. Uh, this is very common, very standard in uh, theology of prayer or any solid teaching on prayer. These are the things that are given. Uh, <clears throat> they might change their names a little bit. Uh, for instance, like intercession and petition, they're really the same thing. Uh, it's just that we say intercession because it uh, is for others. So you're interceding for other people, but petition is asking and so is intercession. So whether you're asking for yourself or you're asking for others, both of those could fall into the category of petition. Uh, and in fact, you could take any of these and, and break them down a little bit more depending upon uh, you know, how, how far you want to get detailed uh, about certain prayers. I mean, there's, there's really the, the prayer that seeks God's wisdom. I mean, that's actually in the book of James. If, if we want wisdom, go ask God for it. And so that could be another type of prayer, but really would fall under petition, technically, as you're asking. Uh, so, <clears throat> you guys don't hear that? You don't hear a crackling? Wow. Is it really? <laughs> I got the deaf congregation. God said you'd have sound issues, so I'll just give you the people who can't hear all that well. Perfect. Just perfect. All right. So, let's look at First Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. Uh, and Paul here in, in 1 Timothy is going to, basically the, the letter that Paul writes here is instructing Timothy in how to uh, teach and instruct his, because uh, Timothy's a young pastor and Paul's an old experienced pastor. So he's, he's teaching Timothy how to instruct his congregation and how to manage his congregation. All right, he's going to tell him how to manage the women. Because obviously you guys know you need some management, just at least a, a, a little, maybe a little more. Uh, the old people, 
She's going to go into that. If, if, if you fit two categories here, bless you. Uh, he's going to instruct them on pastors, what pastors should be like, what elders should be like, what deacons should be like. Uh, he's going to instruct him on, how, really, he's going to say, this is how everybody should function in the church. This is the behavior, the conduct that is becoming of the church. And he's going to instruct Timothy on all of that. Notice where he starts, though. The first thing that he mentions is not the administrational uh, rules and, and truths, but prayer. He starts with prayer. So he says in verse 1, 1 Timothy 2.1, First of all, then, I urge that entreaties, and this is a word for entreaty here means uh, a grave desire that you're requesting for. So it, it's off, this word is often translated prayer. I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions uh, between uh, and, and thanksgivings. Now, so the first three are basically synonyms. It's, it's interesting that Paul uses all three. All three of these words could be interpreted prayer in, in different passages. So I urge that in requests or entreaties, prayers, that's the general term for prayers, prasukamai, uh, petitions, uh, and, and then thanksgivings. Now, thanksgiving is, is certainly eucharisteo, where we get our word eucharist from. It, it means to be thankful, be made on behalf of all men. Right, so be praying for others, uh, entreaties. So this is what Paul says, continually pray for me and for others, as, he, as we looked at in Ephesians 6. Uh, same, two of the same uh, entreaties and prayers uh, are those first two, are two words that he uses in, in Ephesians 6. With thanksgiving, be, be made on behalf of all men for kings and for all who are in authority. All right, so if you're not a Democrat, you need to be praying for your president. I don't care what your political affiliation is, right? Per says the Lord, uh, <clears throat> for kings and all who are in authority, in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, which is why we can pray who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony born at the proper time. And for this I was appointed a preacher, an apostle. And then he says, I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. I have no idea why he has to say that to Timothy, but he, he says it. As a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands. It's a very Jewish uh, Hebrewism. Is that's how they prayed with their hands up. Without wrath and dissension. Right? So, <laughs> I love it. Don't pray for others and have wrath against them at the same time, I guess, what Paul's saying here. In other words, have peace amongst yourselves. And I want men in every place to pray. And this is the first thing that he mentions before giving Timothy the instructions on how to run the church. Uh, it, it would seem that Paul is getting here at this, you know, you have to be a type of person. If you're going to have an effective life in the church, you would have an effective spiritual life, uh, which we're all growing in. It doesn't mean that you can't be in a church when you, you know, you're, you're a new believer, but and that's what we're headed towards. And, and notice he says that effective prayer leads to in... Um, Verse 2, uh, tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity, which is good and acceptable. The word acceptable means pleasing to, uh, in, in the sight of God our Savior. So an effective prayer life is a tranquil, quiet, godly life of dignity. Uh, dignity here would mean a, a, an ethical life before God. And notice how Paul here would know, of course, that the effective prayer life is tied to an effective spiritual life. And that's what Psalm 1 and 2 are about. Before you get into the Psalms and really understand and uh, meditate upon and pray upon these wonderful poetry, poetry, this wonderful poetry that's through the Psalms, is that we have to be people of a certain type or we'll just we'll butcher them. 
you know, this lovely, beautiful parallelism that Hebrew uses in this wonderful book of Psalms that we'll just treat it without the dignity that it deserves if we're not the type of people that Psalm 1 describes and Psalm 2 describes. And, and that's, what the, that's why it's there in the opening of the book of Psalms. So as we noted, uh, Psalms is the prayer book, the song book of the Bible. It doesn't begin, however, with a song or a prayer. The first two Psalms are an introduction. Uh, the introduction, the first one is a meditation that consists of the way of life, or really, sorry, contrast the way of life of the righteous and the way of life of the ungodly, and then sets the stage for hostility. So there's the righteous, there's the ungodly, and that sets up conflict or uh, hostility. The righteous live among ungodly men, and the ungodly are hostile towards God's law, which is, which is what the righteous strive to keep. So while we're striving to keep God's law and at times struggling with it, those who could care less about the law because they're ungodly people, they don't care about God's law, they, um, they, they are hostile towards us. And they hate the law. They hate the way of it. They hate salvation because salvation is through Jesus Christ alone. And they certainly hate the um, truth of the matter is that if they reject Christ as their Savior throughout their lives, they will come into final judgment. And that they detest, obviously. <clears throat> psalm 2 is a royal psalm that lays out the connection between God's rule and his human monarchy. God is going to set a, and already has, but in Psalm 2 he was going to set his son, uh, who would be a human being, on Mount Zion and promised him, as we'll see it, uh, all the kingdoms of the earth. And that has been accomplished. But back then it was a promise, and now that promise is fulfilled. So as uh, Alan Ross writes an awesome commentary on the Psalms, um, I thank God for this man and his work. He makes me sound smarter than I am. Putting the two Psalms together, we have the main themes of the book. The way of the righteous are to the way of the righteous are to live among the ungodly and the salvation the righteous have in their divinely chosen king. And so those are the first two Psalms. They're the main themes of the entire thing. Now, the Psalms touch on everything in the spiritual life. There, you, for anything that you are, uh, basically every doctrine, everything you could think of is found somewhere in the Psalms. And this introduction, therefore, is not just an introduction to the Psalms, but it's an introduction to life. And now think about it. We have two different kinds of people, the saved and the unsaved in Psalm 1, and then we have the king in Psalm 2. And those who don't kiss, and this is the, the Hebrew word is kiss him, those who don't honor and kiss the king come into judgment. And those who do have this wonderful life of prosperity. Remember, God's prosperity is not man's, so it's, it's not you know, bunches of money. But it's the prosperity that God considers prosperity. And that the person is stable and they bear fruit. And fruit would be the fruit of the Spirit, the righteous life. And because their king sits on Zion and that no matter how many people come against them, the Lord in heaven laughs at them, meaning that your, your feeble attempt to dethrone the Lord Jesus Christ is just laughable, that this gives us hope and confidence. So that no matter what we go through, because we're going to be persecuted and we're going to face yeah, so many problems that we face are devised by ungodly people, right? So why, you know, just why is the price of gas over five bucks a gallon? Ungodly people, you know. I'm not saying, you know, sure there are natural causes that might drive up prices, but generally it's greed. Uh, why are, you know, why are certain freedoms taken from us? Why are, you know, why? Now that all this stuff is coming out about the vaccine, and they were like, oh, yeah, sorry, you know, we didn't tell you it doesn't stop the spread or whatever it's doing. 
why did they do all that they do? You know, not everybody, you would say, but in many cases, it's because ungodly people are power hungry and 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 money hungry. They're greedy and power hungry, and so and we suffer as a result. So we say, God, take away the ungodly. You can ask that prayer. He's going to say no. I'll, I'll, I'll get ahead of that and tell you that he's going to say no. <laughs> They're going to stay there. He's going to tell us no. Just like we saw Paul say, you pray for them and endure. And if you endure and you're that tree planted by the stream, and what's the stream? The law of God. Then I will show you how to prosper in everything despite what the ungodly are doing, despite what's going on in your life. You know, whatever hard things, both adversity and prosperity. <clears throat> so has God been caught off guard by sin and evil? You know, is he, was he in heaven going, wow, what did I do? No, he has decreed human history and has allowed this contrast to exist. This conflict between the godly and the ungodly, between the forces of darkness and the forces of light, he has set it up, knowing full well what would happen. He has also established, however, his absolute authority in the world. And we say, wait, you know, if God has established his absolute authority in the world, then you know, uh, there's a lot of people who are not obeying the authority of God. There's a lot. That, including us, a lot of the time. <clears throat> but that doesn't mean that God isn't absolutely sovereign. And this is something else that gives us hope. Who's going to get around God's law? Zero. Including us. Who's going to get around, you know, who's going to find that loophole in the law of God? When I say the law of God, I mean everything. Everything that he, that he in righteousness, puts upon mankind to follow to do and not do, and upon us as believers, all the commandments that we have in the New Testament and the Old. The commandments in the Old, like I, always, I say, you know, adultery is still not cool in the church age. It's still a sin. Uh, same with murder. Same with lying. You know, the Ten Commandments still apply, except for the Sabbath. But, um, you know, who's going to get, where's the loophole? There is none. Notice that we're going to go to this later. We're going to look at it a little bit more. But Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, 17 and 18, Do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, you see that not, not the smallest letter or stroke. And I could give. I have this set up for later, so I can give you a sneak peek. Here's the, see that little letter, that yod? It's like a little mark. You, you could easily miss it. It's not, it, they make it look too big in that first picture, but you see over in that second one where it says jot, you know, that, and Hebrew goes right to left, which is even more bizarre, but uh, that little jot, the, the tittle is like the little corner off the bottom. So notice the difference between a beth and a cough. Right? It's just that little bit. So if you're a scribe and you just draw like what would to us looks like a backward C, well, is it a B or is it a C? Is it a B or is it a K? But see what Jesus is saying here, that not any little bit of the law is going to be lost. And that's what's so brilliant about his use of that, uh, the way he says it here. Not. So the not is a double negative in Greek. It's bad English, but great Greek. It's ume, and it means absolutely not. There's no other way. There's the strongest way to say, like we would underline it or say absolutely not. In Greek, they use the negative twice. Not. The smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. So, yeah, the law is still here, and the law is to be obeyed. Except for us, you know, we're not sacrificing animals and stuff like that because Jesus Christ has already come, and he's accomplished that. So everything a part of the law that would pertain to uh, a ritual that speaks of the coming Christ, we, those are gone. We don't do that. 
But the law itself, the ethics, the morals, we're under it. And Jesus, in this very sermon, taught us what the law was always meant to be. So, for instance, he says, you've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. All right? That's in the Ten Commandments, part of the law. And he says, but I say to you, don't even look at a woman to lust for her. And he's, he's saying that, look, this don't commit adultery law means all of that. And it always had. That's just that man, uh, it sounds a little, a little too strict for us. So we always water it down. What Jesus did was not water it down, but tighten it up. And he actually revealed the law in its absolute purity. And in this, and none of us are perfect at this, we know we're all sinners, and we all, we all know how much we need to confess and, and need the grace of God, which we have, and the forgiveness of God. But that does not take away from the fact that the law itself, or God's law, is upon all mankind, and who are we to look to him and say, well, it's too much. You kind of went overboard here, God. Right? Don't you want, you understand who we are, right? Like, you shouldn't be so strict with us. <laughs> That's us, a sheep looking at a shepherd and saying, you know, why, why don't you change things to suit us? And God's not going to do that. Now, of course, we need all the help we can get. But what do we, so this is what it gets at. And it, it, this is all through the scripture. What are we striving for? I know you, you mess up, I mess up. Right? I sin, you sin. You know, what, what, did, what was your day like yesterday? Please, don't tell me. And I won't tell you mine. Maybe it was great. Maybe it was just complete blunder. But what am I striving for? And that, the, the promise is, is that if you, if you really are, you're not playing games with God, but you're really striving for this life, you will find it. You might not find it as quick as you'd like, and probably not near as quick as other people would like. But you will. So keep at it. But don't water it down. That's the thing you can't do. If, you, if the target is over there and you move the target to somewhere closer, and you're, you're making yourself miss the target. And then you're lying to yourself that you did get the target, and you're never at the target. Besides, like, the supermarket, maybe. I don't know. But anyway, it's not a supermarket. Go to Psalm 1. Psalm 1. And right at the start here, what I just said is exactly what is said to us. Psalm 1.1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Notice that, and by the way, this is the ungodly. It's not necessarily everybody who does wicked things. It's those who have rejected God's, rejected the gospel, basically. This, the word wicked is used all throughout the Psalms in various places. It doesn't always mean people are like axe murderers or, you know, who are in jail, who have broken the law. Uh, it's, it means all those who have rejected God's covenant. But notice, and I love this, they have counsel. You know, it'd be one thing if those who were ungodly and wicked would just, you know, keep to themselves. Oh, but no. They've got, they've got advice. They've got counsel. They, they have to teach their way. And it's just the, the pride of man has to justify his way. And if he can get other people to agree with him or her, then it, it makes it feel makes them feel better. But so they always have counsel. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of scoffers, nor sit in this uh, sorry, stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. The word blessed is asherah. And uh, asherah refers to a joyful spiritual condition of those who are right with God and the pleasure and satisfaction that they derive from that. This is another word that's used all throughout the Old Testament. It's used in many places. And when you survey it in its various places, it doesn't mean, because happiness, we get kind of confused and can confuse ourselves. The, you know, Happiness is a superficial feeling, 
that depends upon circumstances. You know, what happens? And if something good happens to me and I get happy, I might think, well, this is me blessed by God. But it might not be. Uh, you know, we, we'll get happy about many things, but that's not what is in, in view here. Which would show us that you would be blessed even when you don't feel happy. Right? When Jesus was a man of sorrows, was he blessed in what he did? You know, and that's what this is. It's a joyful condition of those who are right with God and get pleasure and satisfaction from doing God's will. And hence, you're blessed. So, the, the parallel term to this would be in the Sermon on the Mount in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom of God. You know, blessed are those who search or hunger and thirst for righteousness. They shall be satisfied. Blessed are the meek. They shall inherit the earth. And, you know, that, that same thing. It blessed, but it means happy. But it also, it, it's not just dependent on circumstances. As in this case where the prosperity of the one who longs for God's law is not necessarily earthly prosperity. Sometimes it will be, and but to that person it doesn't matter. You know, it's it's like Job. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Uh, whether we have stuff or we lose stuff, we we know that our King Psalm two sits on the throne, and this is sovereign. He's sovereign over my life. So if adversity comes my way and people take things from me or I lose things or someone that I love dies even and there's the loss there, uh, the word of God says gives me hope and therefore I prosper in my soul. Like the hope of losing a, a loved one is in 1 Corinthians 15. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your, your sting? So... <clears throat> Then we have a threefold description. First, we have the wicked. They're the ungodly. They're unbelievers who may or may not be involved in wicked deeds. And it, it needs to be said because there's a lot of ungodly people out there who are quite nice. You know, they're nice people. They do nice things. They're, they're not, you know, uh, terribly uh, painful to deal with. But yet, they have nothing of value to offer. But they, and, and they're, in that case... That could be trickier because their counsel is more believable. You know, if someone says, if someone gives you counsel who's, you know, who's in jail, like, well, you know, you know, someone tells, if someone's giving you counsel on how to live, and they're, you know, locked up for murder or something. You, say, you know, maybe I'll listen to someone else. But when it, if it's someone who is just is, has a fine life and it seems to be a moral person. But if you if you're um, an unbeliever, you, you know nothing of God and of that life, and though you know some things, right? Like a, if someone wants to advise you on you know what to order at a certain restaurant, and they know the menu and have eaten there, I'll be like, yeah, you know, they they can give you good advice on that. But when it comes to living, you know, life as God has made it, they know nothing of it. And that's it. Their counsel is, is something you have to be careful of or wary of. Then we have sinners. And these are obviously those who fail to obey God. And so we have the unbeliever and then those who reject God's law. The unbeliever can live under certain aspects of God's law, which as it is for you know, the world. But those who fail to obey God, that would be under the category here of sinners, and uh, either ignorantly or intentionally breaking the law of God. So the, the list uh, increases in intensity. And then finally we get to scoffers. And scoffers are the ones who are vicious with their words. And so the intensity increases from unbeliever to lawbreaker to scoffer. And it's actually of this very same word in Proverbs 24.9. The devising of folly is sin and the scoffer is an abomination to men. And there's a lot of scoffers around. There's certainly a lot of them around today. Now, now they've got social media to scoff on. So, and, the, and they don't have to do it to anybody's face, so they get emboldened. So the blessed don't what? They don't walk with them? They don't sit with them? Sorry, it's walk, stand, and sit. 
And you know, if you never heard of Watchman Nee, he has a great book called Sit, Walk, and Stand, which is about the book of Ephesians, by the way. But this, in the order they have them here, is do not walk with them, stand with them, or sit with them. Uh, and that would mean that you avoid them. And it, it doesn't mean, I wouldn't say that you're separate from them completely and that you don't talk to them at all because they need the gospel more than anybody. But uh, it means that you are not in their counsel. You are not in their uh, listening to their way or uh, partnering with them in their way. <clears throat> so what, what do the blessed do in verse... Two, they delight in the law of the Lord. His delight is not the unbeliever, sinner, or scoffer, but his delight is the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. So this is Torah, but it would refer to all the scriptures in this context. Certainly, it wouldn't be just the... The Torah sometimes refers to just the first five books uh, written by Moses, the Pentateuch. But uh, it's everything here, of course. I mean, if they only meant the Torah, then the writer of Psalms would say, don't delight in the Psalms. You know? It means everything, all the scripture. Uh, so blessed, the blessed delight in the law. And they meditate on it. So let's look at it. Go to Psalm 19. And we'll, we're going to skip around a little bit. Psalm 19, look at verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Uh, desirable, true, righteous, and sweet is what? The law of the Lord. Now, for you know, so many people in our world, the, the law of the Lord is just an obstacle to try and get around. It, it is something that is not in this what this is described as. Uh, David, who wrote this psalm, starts it off with looking at the sky and, and seeing the wonder of God's creation, how God uh, you know, has the sun come up day in and day out. He, he starts the psalm with God's faithfulness in his creation and takes that, he, he focuses on the sun and the sun gives light to everything and then he moves to the law. And so he's drawing a parallel between the law that, uh, sorry, the sun that gives life to all things and the law of God, the sun that shines on all things and the law of God. And do we see, like the sun is a necessity. Do we see the law as a necessity? And that's where he gets at here. It says in Psalm 1 that they meditate on it day and night. Day and night doesn't mean every waking moment. It means consistently. And we'll look at that, but go back to Psalm 2. <clears throat> look at Psalm 2, verse 1. And he says, why are the nations in an uproar? <laughs> I love this. He's like, what is wrong with you people? Why are you in an uproar? And the people's devising. See that word devising? It's the same exact word used in Psalm 1 for meditating. So instead of meditating on the law, which is what the blessed do, the nations who are in an uproar, the peoples, are meditating on or devising something empty. Vain means empty. It's not the same. It's not Havel that uh, Solomon uses in Ecclesiastes, but it's a, it's a synonym to that. It means empty. What are they meditating on? What are they devising? What are they working out? Trying to figure out. Emptiness. It's pure emptiness. So meditation, what is that? Well, the meditation is to know the scripture and to know it well enough that you can recall it. 
And so it is hiding God's word in your heart like a treasure. Knowing that these words, you don't have to memorize them word for word. You can. It's, it's a great exercise to do it. But I know most, most people don't like doing that. But if you, if you can meditate upon a passage, not if you can, if you do. I mean, anybody can do it. You meditate upon a passage rather than superficially running through it. And, and we don't do that here, right? You hear me, I repeat, and I'll repeat it, and I'll, I'll stay on the point for a while and on a passage for a while. And that's hopefully so it sinks in there. So once it's in our heart like a treasure, you can pull it out and look at it at any time, right? I don't know, you don't have to carry your Bible around with you all the time. Of course, now you can have a Bible app on your phone. You can look up anything any time, but the... You know, you can have this at the ready, these truths that are treasures in your heart that you can use all through the day. And that's what the psalmist says, day and night. All through, no matter what you face. People you're facing, situation you're facing, you know a truth that applies to this, at least to get your head straight before you... In my case, it's if if I do well during the day, I'm thinking, uh, I'm actively thinking truth before I open my mouth to anybody, and it could be a stranger, you know, that I see in the store or something. I don't know. That my I'm thinking right before I speak. I'm thinking right before I act. And even when I'm by my when we're by ourselves. Right, that you can get yourself in trouble there quite easily, especially since no one's watching. That um, you know, right thinking, you'd be able to pull out the truth and meditate upon it and make all the difference in the world. And and then and so what's the result here? Is, is again getting back to that first term that we looked at is blessedness. There's the reward. It's not it's not riches, and it's not honor amongst the people of the world. That's not promised at all to the church. But what is promised is this: to have a blessed life. That, as he says here at the at the end of verse three, and whatever he does, he prospers. And. Uh, you know, if if we're playing around with sin as Christians, uh, we're, uh, you know, claiming grace and playing around with sin, and we have the grace of God, we're forgiven of all things, and we know it. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We know it. And thank God, if we weren't forgiven of all things, we'd be doomed. So we are forgiven of all things. But if we play around with the sinful life, uh, we're only robbing ourselves of that. And so you need momentum for that. It, it, ha- it cannot be like a day spiritual here and there. This has to be on a, on a, a momentum track. And that you're walking with the Lord. And yeah, even when you do that, you're going to fail and you're going to fall. But walk with Him and meditate on that law. Not just a day here and a day there, but every day. And day and night. And there is the promise that it's God's life. You've tapped in, you've plugged into God's life. But if we keep plugging in and unplugging, and again, I'm not talking about sinlessness, I'm talking about that we don't have consistency. So next is, what is meditating? I, I looked in the Psalms for one instance. Go to Psalm 8. I mean, you know, I thought of the word consider, because meditating is, is considering something. Um, it's it's a use of your time in considering a truth. And I, I recommend this, that you pick a passage. Uh, don't pick it out of context. Pick an entire passage and read it and then meditate on it. Whether it's a passage that we're talking about currently in class or something else. And meditate on it means to spend five, ten minutes, maybe more if you want to. But five to ten is generally enough. If you do it consistently, then you will gain for yourself a a deeper understanding. And if there's things that you don't understand about it, at least you know that. If you didn't meditate on it, you wouldn't have known that. And then you can search for that. You can ask me. You can ask me where to go to find it or whatever. 
So meditation on the Word allows one to speak to God about the Word, turning its ideas and concerns into prayer. So Psalm 8, look at verse 3. Again, David, looking at the heavens. When I consider thy heavens and the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you do take thought of him, and the son of man that you do care for him? What is man? So right now, and I, I found this kind of by accident. There's bright, uh, my porch off of my house faces due south, a little bit southeast. And rising in the east, we're all thinking, but there's a super bright star up there. And I gave it a look. Well, first I looked it up in the computer. It's Jupiter. So now it's been coming up for a month now. So right when it gets dark, if you look to the east, there'll be one bright star about, I don't know, about 45 degrees up. And if you have, you don't even need a good pair of binoculars, a decent pair of binoculars, and you can see the moons of Jupiter. It's, you'll see, they're just little tiny lights. But you've got to keep, I have a shaky hands, man, so I see it's like they're moving all over the place. But the steadier you can be, the better. But as you're looking at them, you can see the bright, bright Jupiter. And what's cool is, if you go out and look at it later, those little dots move with it. So you know they're not stars that are behind it. And over time, they've shifted position, which I've recognized that. I look at them like every other, you know, every other night or something. It's right at like nine, eight, and eight o'clock, nine o'clock, where it gets dark now, and it's right there. And those little moons are moving. I can see them. Sometimes I see four of them. Sometimes I see two. And uh, Jupiter has, I forget, has like 15 moons or something. But, uh, <clears throat> and you know, it's amazing stuff. It's, uh, unfortunate, there's not a lot of people looking up at the stars anymore. Because we have our little phones and devices and stuff. But uh, David didn't have a smartphone while he was a shepherd out in the wilderness. So he was looking at the stars and a lot of time to consider things. And that's the other thing about prayer. Time, right? We've addressed this and we should address it whenever it comes up. We're not too busy for this. And meditating on a passage, you're not too busy for that either. Remember, that was Luther's method. Meditate on a passage for a few minutes and then go into prayer. Just to get your heart straight. And we have time for this. But we're, we get into this, this busyness. And we're really not doing all that much either. <laughs> you know. So anyway, when I consider, and that's the word I was going for here, thy heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you do take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God and have crowned him with glory and majesty. And <clears throat> you make him rule over the works of your hands and have put all things under his feet. Now that's something to contemplate. This passage is used in reference to Jesus Christ in the book of Hebrews because he, came, he became lower than, well, it's in Hebrews it's angels, and you know, what is God doing with us? And this is something that you, you will explore for the rest of our lives. Humanity, right? It's important. We're the only ones created in his image. Angels are not. We are. So what does that make us? And how can I find within myself, not because of anything I've done, or my own genetics, or my own brains, or whatever I've got that the world considers good, if I have any of that. But how do I find you know, this confidence and courage and esteem that God wants me to have as a human being? Being completely human as we're designed to be. So in meditation also, we should note, is self-exhortation, sometimes rebuking. Rebuking yourself, absolutely. Exhorting, encouraging, when need be. We need it all. And I put 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed or inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Reproof and correction, we get a lot of that. Because we're dumb little sheeples that are trying to figure it out. And so, in meditation on a passage, there's 
and you know, you can rebuke yourself without condemnation, which is just wonderful. So in the Hebrew, the word for meditation actually was used for speaking out loud. And uh, that actually, what, and, and this actually works, although, you know, you would have to be truly alone to do this. If you prayed out loud or read your passages out loud, you're hearing yourself saying them. And to, the Jews use that as a, as a means of gaining a deeper understanding. I, I'd say give, you give it a shot. If someone hears you talking to yourself, so what? Who cares? They say you're crazy. You say, yeah, well, I am. Go to, back to Psalm. Let's look at verse 3, Psalm 1, I mean. The third passage, or uh, third uh, line. And he will be, Psalm 1, 3, and he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. So the writer here, by the way, we have no idea who wrote these two psalms. But the writer here um, has us as trees. This is very common all throughout Scripture to describe us as agricultural products. Plants, right, where the branches that are in the vine, who is Jesus Christ. Uh, we'll see a couple other passages too. And the, you know, the, the reason why it's, so, it's firmly planted, which means it's stable. And that, of course, means it's a gift from God to be able to handle anything. Right to not fall apart with bad news, or you know, something doesn't work out the way you wanted it to. Somebody's not working out the way you wanted them to. Whatever, somebody's doing this against you, and on and on. Uh, I, it, we, it, Chris and I have, been, have come to know since through Maggie's school a number of families in Dallas, and man, oh man, if you just met. If you meet all these people, they just walk by you, you say hi, everything looks dandy and fine, and you find out for many of them, it's, their lives are a disaster. And, and I, you know, I, it's just the ones I'm thinking about right now is disaster was done to them. And it's terrible. And your first thing, you know, your first thing is that how could this be fixed? And God, who can fix anything, says, you know, that's not the first thing that comes into my mind. As if, you know, I'm, now I'm talking like I know what God would say. But, you know, what's the first thing is, I want you to go through this and have stability in me. Not in your circumstances. Not fall apart and then, you know, waiting for me to, to fix everything and then you're stable again but to actually handle it because it's out of your control. And even the stuff that you do that wasn't in your control, which would be sin, handle it and deal with it. And uh, that's the tree firmly planted by streams of water. The streams of water would be the law because he delights in the law. It yields fruit in its season. That's fruit, we would say, the fruit of the Spirit. It's the first thing that we should think of. Um, and its leaf does not wither, meaning that it is always vibrant. It means it prospers. So, uh, and then in whatever he does, he prospers. The leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. This, these first three verses are the person along with their worship of the king in Psalm 2, this is the person who can now turn to all the Psalms and glean great things from them, because their heart is right. Again, doesn't mean they're perfect. Uh, the tree represents the godly person. The streams of water are the word of God. And so we looked at it, as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 3, 6, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So Apollos watered with what? With the word of God. But of course, God is the one causing the growth. Another very famous passage 
And there's many, uh, the vine and uh, the branch in the vine, branches in the vine, the parable of the sower, which talks about the good soil. And this would represent that very thing. God uses this a lot. In Jeremiah 17, 7, the, you know, I, I squeezed all this because I wanted to stay in Psalms. But just prior to this, it says, uh, the man who trusts in the flesh is like a dried up bush in the desert. And then he says this, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, and whose trust is the Lord. For he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream, and will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green, and it will not be anxious in a year of drought, nor cease to yield fruit. Sounds exactly like Psalm 1. It is exactly like Psalm 1. Jeremiah probably stole it from Psalm 1. But it's God's word. He could steal it if he wants. So, take, uh, bearing fruit, it says in its season, and what this would refer to, and it's actually, we say, well, in its season means not all the time, right? Because seasons change. Isn't that, that's a famous song, isn't it? Uh, but um, it, this, it, what is brought out here, sorry, what is brought out here is something harder, actually than consistent, meaning all the time. So take kindness, for instance, as a fruit of the Spirit. I would be kind all the time. Okay, but you don't have the opportunity to be kind all the time. Kindness goes to other people. And they're not always there. So it's not that I'm kind all the time. It's that I'm kind in every opportunity that confronts me which means that I've always got to be ready to be kind. And that is harder <laughs> than being kind consistently. And that I always have the mindset that whatever happens, when I, even when I'm alone, if I think of a person, I think of a situation, which you know, happens so much where a person just jumps into our memory from somewhere in the past or, current or present, and... I can immediately judge the person if need be, not need be, sorry, if I want to. Or I could be kind. I'd be gentle. It's another fruit of the Spirit. Love. I could love them. That's another fruit of the Spirit. I must always be ready for this. And I, I take, for C.S. Lewis, he writes a great chapter on this in Mere Christianity. I mention it all the time where, he, you know, he says... The sins that he mostly committed, he'd examine himself at the end of the day and he'd said, well, you know, is when I was either snapping at someone or sneering at someone. He uses a bunch of S words and he's, he says, or I was, <clears throat> you know, those are generally it. And then I would always say to myself, well, I was caught off guard. You know, I wasn't ready for that person to say that or to do that. So I snapped at them. Right? Or me, I get bitter and grumpy. That's That's my... One of my many uh, weaknesses. But uh, <clears throat> he said, I got caught off guard. But then he, he, he reasons to himself, but isn't that exactly who you are? Isn't that showing you who you are? You, weren't, you didn't have time to prepare, you know, to put on the mask, so to speak. And so it just reveals us for who we are. It's a good thing to know. And, and we can pray to God about that, the changes that need to be made if we desire them. So the tree produces fruit in its season. <clears throat> how, am I, how am I going to be ready at all times? It's what is said here. I meditate on the law of God day and night. I delight in the scriptures, learning them and living them. And that enables one to be this kind of person. The tree that is stable, that has character, and whose fruit is consistently shown day by day. And then, the leaf doesn't wither. It doesn't wither because it's well watered. It doesn't only survive, but it flourishes. And as Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Not just surviving now, flourishing. Flourishing no matter what the situation is. So as uh, one of my old teachers said, just because we are alive doesn't mean that we know how to really live. 
and say that all the time. Just because we are alive does not know that we know, does not mean that we know how to really live. <clears throat> so we'd ask ourselves, why are we just toying around with so much less in this life? We toy with it. Why are we doing this? Why are we toying around with so much less than that which is abundant life from the author of life, who is Jesus Christ? He gave it to us. He died to give it to us. I suggest that this quick question be a consistent part of our prayer lives. Why am I toying? Because we easily fall into it. Why am I toying around with so much less than this life? What our love of God will have to continue to increase throughout our lives. And as we know, it is what we love that eventually determines our decisions. Right? If we, we are, we are, we've all done this. I'm going to change my behavior starting now. But you haven't changed your love. So you may go for a little while, maybe do all right for a little while, but we always go back to what we love. So we've got to change what we love, if need be. What we love will ultimately make our life footprint on earth. That will eventually, what it is that we love will eventually, will ultimately, be our life's footprint on this earth. If we don't love the Lord and His law more than anything else, even ourselves, then we need to be honest with the Father in prayer and fix it, change it. And the change won't happen overnight, but you must start. We must start to seek with Him the source of an obvious error. And it takes time. That's why Jesus said, ask, seek, and knock. All of those are present tense, present participles. We just looked at it today in Greek class, as a matter of fact, which I found delightful. It means consistent. That we consistently, just like the lady bugging the judge to get a hearing, and she, he finally gives it to her, Jesus said, this is how you should pray. Keep at it, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. And as we noted, it's, we keep asking, seeking, and knocking because we're after the same things all the time. Wisdom, love, virtue, and all of that. More knowledge, more understanding, more seeing God. And so finally, in verse 3, in whatever he does, he prospers. Uh, prospers means flourishes. So let's close here. We'll have to leave the wicked till tomorrow. I'm not going to do much on the wicked. That verses 4 through 6, since we have the righteous here today, we'll see who shows up tomorrow. We'll do the wicked. Go to Philippians chapter 4. He flourishes in lean times and in abundance, adversity and prosperity. Why? Because he's planted by the stream. Philippians 4.11. Very famous passage. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. All right? So, him who strengthens me, that's the streams. The streams, it's plural in someone. Streams, that's the source of life, who is Jesus Christ. But we know of Jesus Christ through his word. And it has to always be based on his word. Um, you know what you get here is expository teaching. It's all that I that I offer. I don't come up here and say I have a message to you about my opinion or about current events or current political things. I don't do that. I I don't I don't I'm not smart enough to do that and to actually have people listen to me. I, I the only thing I can do is God's word, and that is designed, the way it is designed is to give you a love of God's Word. 
so that you long for to, to see, understand a greater, greater depth and more and more of God's Word. And, so, and that's where the secret is. As Paul says here, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry. Well, where did he learn it from? And from God's Word. And so he, as we know, Paul would be the tree planted by the stream. And so we all must be. Now, <clears throat> the uh, second half of Psalm 1 is about the wicked. I don't have much on that. We, there's judgment there, and we could look at that, but that's, that's not my, my goal right now. Uh, the goal here is prayer. Um, if you're a part of the wicked clan, then um, prayer life is going to be non-existent, non-effective. Uh, but so what we want to do is we'll probably just do this. We'll launch into Psalm 2 because the second part of this is, you know, I know what I have to be and I know what the Lord has made me to be. But so, you know, I'd look down the, 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 my future and how difficult it may be or I look at the obstacles, I look at, my pa- I look at the past and my performance at this and it, it don't look too good. My report card's not very good. And, uh, and then we see the king. And the point of Psalm 2 is to give us encouragement and hope because the victory is secure. And, you know, in Psalm 2 is, you know, it's, it's him in victory and we can extrapolate from that many things like our eternity, our resurrection with him uh, in the body that is just like his. Uh, there'll be a time when I can't sin anymore and that's guaranteed. It's, it's my lot. It's my future. It's my destiny. And why? Because my king sits on Zion and he sits right now at the right hand of God. So uh, Psalm 2 is going to give us now the encouragement and the confidence to go after what Psalm 1 tells us to. All right, let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you that you have constantly, continually encouraged us by your word. Thank you for the spirit within that makes your word come alive within us. And, And may we, Father, take these principles to heart to see the real benefit of the abundant life that Christ has given us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's go.